0: All right, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Um, we're going to be uh, kind of continuing a series uh, looking at the church in, uh, in Philadelphia this morning. Um, and we're going to say a prayer in just a moment, but I was kind of, I was thinking about, you know, questions people might have. And, uh, you know, a lot of questions people have brought to me about, uh, you know, what would God write to the church of Meadowlark, for example? That's something that we think about. Uh, what would God write to the Church in Fort Collins? What would God write to the Church of America? Um, how How do some of these messages really convey, and how do they relate uh, uh, to our circumstances? And I was thinking, man, what a tough question that is to answer. because as much as we could talk about the the particular circumstances of each of these churches, um, they were worlds apart from what we think of as church. Um, when we think of this church, um, and I'm just, I, I read this hilarious article, and I'm not doing this to make fun of any church because it's just it's just funny, and we should make fun of ourselves because that's healthy. Um, these these <laughs> these are names of churches uh, today, uh, and and these were separated in the article I read by uh, the random word churches, the grocery store romance novel churches, the gated community churches, the nightclub churches, the gym churches. The internet, startup churches, and the spa churches. These are the names. Create, Destiny, Dream City Church, Reality Church. I think Dream City and Reality are probably at odds with each other. (laughs) The Intersect Church, Elevate, the Compass, Rise, the Red Door Church, the Branch, Harbor, the House, the Journey, the Orchard, the Painted Door. Man, you... You know that's a hipster church, okay? Okay, the, the river, burning hearts. Okay, this is the romance novel section. These are actual names of churches, by the way. I am so sorry to anybody listening online that goes to one of these. We're called Meadowlark. It's a bird, okay? Uh, burning hearts, Epiphany Station. Man, y'all are y'all are edgy at Epiphany Station. Mercy Road, New Horizons, Passion Point. And you better make clear that you're a church if you have a name like that. Second Chance Church, Shepherd of the Prairie, The Nest of Love. You definitely need to make sure you're a church. The Refuge, now the Gated Community Churches, Bayside, Prairie Heights. These churches have homeowners associations to regulate their grass. The Nightclub Churches, these are the best ones. 180, Dwell, Elevate, Epic. Slow, discovery, ignite, lighthouse, oasis, submerge. And what the awesome thing is, these churches, because I listen to a lot of sermons out live, they actually have like that nightclub voice that introduces the bumper trailer that, you know, kind of goes into this. Welcome to nightclub. I mean, not to nightclub. Please don't call your church. Okay. uh, uh, The alley, encounter, the experience, the pursuit, the spot, the verge. Vida explosiva. The Gym Churches, Champion Action, Empowerment Center, the No Limits Fellowship Church, the Potential Church, uh, the Foundry, the V Life Church, which sounds more like a protein shake, but we still put it in the Gym category. The Internet Startup Churches, Catalysts, Elevate, 1132, Engage, Gateway, Genesis, Legacy, Mosaic, My Church, Netcast Church, One Church, Perimeter, Quests. And then my personal favorite were the spa churches. Renovate, Radiant, Cool Water, H two O Sandals, Fresh Life, The Healing Place, Wellspring. I was and I was thinking about how different the reason I'm sharing that with you is how different we perceive church today than they perceived church in the first century. We and, and at first I thought it was something that they would be just They would hate. And in some ways, I think that there are some downsides to sort of the marketing church that we do today that is more of a corporate type thing. I think there's a lot of downsides to that. I think we all recognize that. But at the same time, I think a lot of the church in the first century would would be like dumbfounded that we live in a time that you can actually talk about church that way. That you could actually like even have commercials, you know, for church and stuff. They didn't live in that kind of time. There was the church of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There was the church. And they were struggling to make ends meet. They were struggling to stay alive. They didn't really have the luxury of of the bumper trailers and the, am I going to dim the lights this Sunday or not dim the lights this Sunday? That just wasn't where they were at. And so I, think, I thought about that, and I thought, man, what would you do if you were at one of these churches? Did you know that Philadelphia is only 20 miles south of Sardis? So if you received one of these letters, why wouldn't you just say, I'm going to Philadelphia. I'm sorry, we're, my family's changing membership because this is the, I'm going to get my candlestick removed church. This is the, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth church. That's next week, right? Um... Why wouldn't I just change my membership to that? Hey, I've put an open door in front of you, church. Why wouldn't I just change? Why wouldn't I just go somewhere different? And that's what I wanted you to hear about how I think we're supposed to apply some of the churches, uh, some of the letters that are written here. They're really written on an individual letter. It's not something I can, I can really run away from or escape from. The truth is, I will not face judgment with Meadowlark. Um, I, I will not stand at judgment with Meadowlark. I'm not even going to stand at judgment with my wife. I hate that. You know, it's crazy. I'm not going to stand at tr- judgment with my mom and my dad. I don't stand at judgment with any group of people. And I wrote something down in my notes that this morning, I, just, I knew something was wrong with it. But in my notes, it said, you stand in judgment alone. It's you. It's the most lonely place. It's appointed, right? It says in Hebrews, it's appointed for every man to die and then face the judgment. But the truth is, I know that I'm going to stand before a God. Before I get into this letter, I know I stand before a God with what First John says is an advocate that is at my side. Jesus Christ, the righteous, that I am not alone, that I will stand there before my God. And someone who knows every in and out of who Jeff is, and I will stand before him. And it will be a moment that is the most sacred moment of my life. Because it will be so full of grace, and I know that. But when I read these letters and we go through these letters, the question isn't, well, where's Meadowlark? The question is really, who am I individually and how am I supposed to take these these messages? And what does God want to speak uh, to me personally and to my heart? And so that's what I want to pray for y'all that are here this morning. I just pray that um, especially if you just came here and this is your first Sunday here and you came to Meadowlark, our prayer this morning, you'll see us on Sundays. Um, We will stand up here and just pray over the service. And one of the things we're praying this morning is I just pray that when people come here, my prayer is that this isn't about experiencing a church and what happens at this church and what doesn't happen at this church. My prayer is that this is so much bigger than that. And this is about experiencing God. And that that, that that this is us together as a family coming to the presence of God, coming in before his throne and saying, God, please work on me and push me. Don't allow me to be stagnant in my faith. And every week we've been challenged on something. We've been challenged on involvement and challenged in giving. We've been challenged in all of these different ways before him. It's like, what happens in 2018? What's going to happen in my life to say, get up and start moving forward? Start leaving behind the junk that has been in your life for so long. Start moving out of it and start making changes. Stop defining yourself by your pasts. And start defining yourself by Jesus Christ alone. That's been the point of this this um this series of messages and revelations. So before we get into this church of Philadelphia, um let's go ahead and open up a prayer uh and just lift our hearts before God and let's do that. Oh my God, I uh I ask that you would do that in our lives. Um that you would, I, I praise you, uh, and I, I guess even with some of the downsides and the dark sides of it, I, I praise you for the freedom that we do have. I praise you that I don't live in the fear, and I praise you that I don't live in the, the uncertainty um, that so many of, of the people that we're reading about lived in. But I pray, God, that we won't allow, just like John said this morning, I pray that we won't allow ourselves to get comfortable in that that we would push ourselves, that we would understand that we are on this massive Titanic that is sinking. And regardless of whether we got good rooms on it or bad rooms on it, it's going down, and, and you've given us something so much more. And I pray, God, that we would look to you and just cling to you with everything we've got. I love you so much for giving us this, this message. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, David, we asked, asked me if I knew how many... Cities were named Smyrna in the United States. States that was a typical David Wheat question. Very, I don't know. Uh, turns out there's 19 Smyrnas in the United States. There's 26 Philadelphias. The rest of the churches didn't get much, and uh, we kind of arrived at the conclusion: Wow, we seem to be naming ourselves after the churches that got good reports, right? You don't see any pergamums in the United States, for example. You're not going to see too many of these. Um, But Philadelphia is actually a super positive letter. One thing I want you to know that these two churches have in common, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two that kind of got positive messages. I want you to know that uh, the first is called a poor church. They're struggling with poverty. The second, Philadelphia, is called a weak church. And it's so in line with Jesus' character, and we talked about it in class this morning. And it's so in line with Jesus' character that his heart always went out to the weak, into the poor, into the hurting, to open up a door, to open up access to him. And where his fury, you know, when he just got agitated, we got angry, it was because somebody was shutting the doors of the kingdom in somebody else's face. And that's what really set him off. And so this church of Philadelphia, we're going to kind of talk about some of this. Uh, but first I want to just read to you two quotes from a historian. I won't, that, and I'm, then I'm done, okay? So just listen to these two quotes. These are from Strabo. He's a Roman um, historian who wrote about the same time or earlier that Revelation was written. And this is what he says about Philadelphia. And Philadelphia has not even its walls secure, but they are daily shaken and split in some degree. The people continually pay attention to earth tremors and plan their buildings With this factor in mind, the city of Philadelphia is full of earthquakes. The walls never cease being cracked, and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. He goes on to write that they can't fathom that somebody ever thought to build a city in such a place as this. Has anyone, raise your hand, have you ever been in an earthquake? How many of y'all have been in an earthquake? A whole lot more than I expected. Look, We found out all the Californians that are at church today. (laughs) I just exposed you all. But, uh, but I've been in a few earthquakes, man, and there's different kinds of earthquakes. There's the earthquake that you can't hear, but it makes you feel dizzy. Um, I was in quite a few of those. And you just feel like you're getting nauseous and getting sick, but you find out that everybody else did at the same time, and it was because everything was moving, actually moving, right? Then there were the ones that were just, man, I was in one that turned a bed 180 degrees around. We were under the wind. I mean, it was uh, the door frames. And they were always fun for me when I lived in Ecuador. Um, They were fun, okay? Uh, Sometimes terrifying, but oftentimes fun. But I can tell you this. If I had to do it every single day, and you felt those tremors every day, it would get old. And it would get terrifying. They lived in a place that they knew was going downhill. And I mean the the rocks around them and these pillars um, kind of attest to it. You can see some of the cracking. Now, these were built in the Byzantine period, so they were built after. Uh, Revelation was written, um, the city was completely demolished, completely destroyed, and they knew that that was coming. So that's important to the book. It's important to the writing of this book because he's going to go on and he's going to begin with this text. And we're going to come back to some of that here to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. This has got a crazy rich history. I'm just going to kind of go through this verse by verse. It's got a crazy rich history. He's coming from Isaiah 22:22, is what this verse is coming out of. And there they have the steward of the house. And you'll understand how important stewardship is like in Jesus' parables. The steward of the house, his name was Shebna. And they rebuked him. Isaiah rebukes him and he says, listen, you've used your office to exalt yourself And not the people. Your heart hasn't gone out to the people. But it's for yourself. So I'm removing you from office. I'm going to give the keys of the house of David. To someone else. To Eliakim. And he is going to care for these people. And so the idea of this coming from Isaiah when he says, man, I'm going to change some things. We're going to change stewardship. Matthew 16, 16 refers to this verse when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, man did not reveal this to you, but God revealed this to you. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. It's the same idea that's at play here. But he says this, I am the one. And if I put an open door before you, no one can shut it. Throughout Revelation... Jesus is presented as the one who holds the key of David. He's presented as the root of David. He's presented as the offspring of David in chapters 5 and 22. Um, But I want to talk to you about what a door is and why a door, this open door, is so relevant to this passage. Um, A door, an open door in front of you is a way out. It's a way out of whatever you are in. And I want you to think about a circumstances that you've either been in or maybe you're experiencing even now. Where you're like, God, I need a way out. I need something different. Life has been this way. This is where I'm at. And I want want change. That's what an open door represents in this context. Change and a way out. But it's also this. It's a way into something completely new. A way into a a transformed world. Something that is totally different than what it used to be. My favorite thing about talking to some of the wiser people that I I think that God has surrounded me with in my life, especially in this church, you talk to people and and you find out that life doesn't have to be the way it is. They've gone through stuff. They've gone through pain. They've gone through sin. Gone through jail. Gone through all kinds of junk in your life. And God provides transformation. And so the lie that you are who you are and nobody can change is completely exposed in Christ. It's a lie. He provides new life, and that's what this open door represents. Jesus said this in John 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through by me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. A door is for advancing the gospel, and that's the primary way it's used in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 2, an open door always meant an opportunity to share your faith and to share the gospel. In Acts 16, Paul wants to go to Asia, and a door was shut for him to go to Asia. He wants to go to Bithynia, and a door was shut for him to go to Bithynia. And then God called him a different direction. He says, man, I want you to go to Macedonia. I'm shutting these doors, and I'm opening these doors. But primarily... In the book of Revelation, a door simply represents access to God, and I want to explain why. I've talked to you about the book of Revelation and what I believe, and the way I present Revelation. I believe it's deliberately patterned after um, a temple ceremony, and particularly the one that began at Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. It's the beginning of a new year, and it opens up with ten days of prostrating yourself before God, giving yourself to God, um, and, and just saying, God, I want to give myself to you. And they would open the temple doors on Rosh Hashanah. They would they would blow the trumpets and the doors, the the beautiful gate of the temple, the one facing east, was opened. And the whole nation, as it were, were presenting themselves to God. And for ten days, Leviticus says they would afflict their souls. They would they would they would They would come before God and say, Man, your judgment on us and on our nation is coming. And that was Yom Kippur. That was the Day of Atonement. And I believe Revelation is patterning after itself. And it it culminates five days later in the Feast of Tabernacles. When God says, My tabernacle will be with men. And I will be their God. And I will dwell among them. This is the pattern of Revelation. And that gets really deep into the book in different ways. And how it's playing that out. But these open doors... One, uh, I believe that that's what it's talking about because that's the pattern of the book. But secondly, because that's what it says in the next chapter. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Revelation also concludes with that, me- that, that message. When the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for a husband, it says, On no day will its gates ever be shut. And the idea is this, You, the nations, the world... You have access to me. I'm opening up the doors and I'm saying, I will be your God. And I want you to come in and have fellowship with me. I want you to enjoy what it is to have life with me. And the reason that's significant is because what it goes on to say, it says, i um, make sure I got this. Yes. I know your deeds. This is verse eight. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars. I'll make them come fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. Um, Looking at this synagogue of Satan is the second time it's been mentioned. Get this. The first time was with Smyrna. Okay, so there's a lot of sister things going on with the church in Philadelphia and with the church in Smyrna. But the synagogue of Satan, in my mind, represents simply that. It's the synagogue. It's This is the Jewish synagogue. And throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, it's the Jews that are persecuting the Christians. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 2. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out, they displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles. Now get this, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way they always heap up their sins to the limit and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. I think 1 Thessalonians two fourteen through 16 really set the context for what's happening in Revelation the Christians have been kicked out of the synagogues. They're living in a city that is crumbling. They're facing persecution from on, on the Jewish front. And God says this. I'm going to make those of the, the synagogue of Satan. I'm going to talk a little bit about why he calls it that. That say they are Jews but are not. Because they're Jews by blood but they're not Jews by faith. They're not my people. Not This is an anti-Semitic message because he's also writing to Jews. The problem is... They had fallen in love with a religion and fallen out of love with god they didn 't have compassion on their fellow man and so he says this i 'm going to make them i 'm going to make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, that you are my people and i 'm going to cause them to recognize this. A really crazy fun fact here is and it's, this is totally new to me i 'm going to keep kind of researching this. But everything that I've come across is that the Jews of the first century, especially the first couple of centuries, seem to have come to a point that they acknowledge that as a nation, they rejected Jesus as the Christ. That's in a lot of writings. Um, It's even in Josephus, who never claimed to be a Christian. He acknowledges Jesus as the Christ. It's even in the Talmud. The Talmud, when... we talked about it a few weeks ago. The Talmud specifically talks about how the nation became cursed in the year that Jesus died and became f- cursed for 40 years leading up to its destruction. They, it's as though they acknowledged the fact, and it seems like this even historically, that they rejected the Christ and their nation had become cursed. It's a crazy fact of history, and I, I'm going to keep researching it, but it seems that that is what happened. But then I'm going to make them come to your, bow balance your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. This is what Revelation keeps doing throughout. He recognizes things as they are. The synagogue that's persecuting you, it's the synagogue of Satan. To Pergamum, the throne of the emperor that's demanding worship, that's persecuting by people, that's the, that's the throne of Satan in your in your place. The Herodian line... Uh, there are seven Herods. They came from Edom, and it was associated with the color red. So what does Revelation do? A seven-headed red dragon standing before the baby Jesus, ready to devour him. It's talking about the Herodian line of kings. But I'm recognizing you as Satan himself. I'm recognizing these problems that are coming up in, in, in this world right now. The things that are they're interfering with my ministry, with church. This isn't people. This is Satan himself coming into the picture, and Revelation keeps drawing our mind to that. And that's something we have to do today, and I appreciated Bob saying that yesterday. We were at the, the, the ministry that we have downtown to the homeless, and uh, Bob he keeps saying this. He says, I know what's going on with my health. I know what's going on with our, our energy. I know what's going on with, and he keeps recognizing it as it is. These are tools of Satan that are coming in our life, and we need to recognize it for what it is, call it for what it is, and recognize that we're at war. And I love it when we talk about that language more and more and more. Um, last week, uh. Uh, I don't know if you're here this morning, uh, but an uh, incredible lady that's been a part of our uh, our church for a little while here recently, uh, Felicia, came to me and said, Man, I have a Bible study set up with a family. Would you come? And it was the most beautiful study that we had together with a family. They're, they've moved back to El Salvador now, and they're going to be in Argentina. But we're studying with them, and, and the lady said something so incredible to me. Um, it, was, it was a tough study because it was in Spanish and so there were times where I had to get her to repeat and we're talking about but she said this you don't need to say anything else so much has happened to, me, to us in our lives that Felicia was led to us at exactly the right time and you were led to us at exactly the right time and we know that you're from God and we know that whatever message you give us we're ready to do we're ready to just follow God now those are scary words because I know that I'm wrong a lot but I loved how she said, said, I know God has done this. And I'm ready to go wherever God leads us. And we talked about, man, have you given your life to God? And he made covenant with him in baptism. They said, no, and we need to, and we want to, but we can't. I said, why can't you? What's going on? We can't because we're not right in the eyes of the church. And I said, what do you mean you're not right in the eyes of the church? I'm I'm the church. You're right in my eyes. What do you mean you're not right in the eyes of the church? She said, we had to pull out of the church in South America. We live in a small town, and there's a church there. And the guy in charge of the church was abusing children. And I had to pull out of the church to protect our kids. And so we're not right in the eyes of the church. And so we're not right in the eyes of God. How about that? And I was just sitting there like on the edge of tears saying, How? Who thinks like that? What? How? And I was so angry. And I realized that that happens in people's lives. I was thinking, it's not us and God. It becomes us and the church and God. And all of a sudden, if I'm not right in the eyes of other people, And if I'm not right in the eyes of the children, if I'm not, all of a sudden I feel guilty before God, even if I was doing this to protect my children. And so we talked about it. I said, one thing I want you to know is by God's grace, he's putting an open door in front of you into restored fellowship with him. And it's not through any man and it's not through any agency. This is an open door back to him. And it was just so beautiful to talk about that because I was thinking about this sermon and I was thinking about those that put a door in front of people to keep them from God. That we should be opening up a door to the community, to God. That is the role of the church somehow. Is to open up this door for people to, un- people to understand God wants fellowship with you. He will restore you. He'll bring you back. And that is a whole lot of what we're called to do. That's a whole lot of what our role is in this world. Is to put this open door in front of the community. He goes on and says in verse ten, "Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth." Uh, now, obviously, with the way I approach Revelation, um, I believe that Revelation was a book that was written, uh, was fulfilled in around seventy A.D. A lot of these events, and so I'll come across, across verses that says the whole world. But that's exactly how the, the verse the, that same language is used in Luke 2. Caesar had issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. He uses the same phrase. It just means the Roman Empire, really, of the time. It's a, it's a disaster that's going to hit them. Now, it's going to sound like, well, Jeff, if you believe that, why wouldn't you? Why would you even study this? Is this a book relevant to us? I would say it's more relevant to us. And I'm going to explain a little bit of why. It gives this promise. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Can you imagine what that verse would have meant? To a city whose literally their foundations are being shaken. They're being cracked. Pillars falling. A city that is literally falling to the ground around them. And God writes to the city and he says this. I'm going to give you something new. I'm going to give you an open door. And I will make you a pillar and a temple of God. And you'll never leave it again. Something that's permanent. I'm going to come back to that. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, This message means something different to every single one of us. Um, It's something that hits you in a very personal place. And I was thinking and I was praying about some of you and some of your situations and where you might be and why this particular message might hit you. John was talking this morning about how personal the book of 2 Corinthians is to him. 2 Corinthians is a book that to me, man, you know how you, I, I, don't get me wrong, I love all the Bible. I love it. I do. I'm, I'm in love with it. But 2 Corinthians is the book that makes me, um, I, I just want to stand up like the whole time it's being read. It, just, it, it gets me in my gut. It's the most personal book to me. And I, it gets me moving, Right. When I read a letter like this and I say, man, God is putting an open door in front of you. He's giving you a promise to something different and something new. Will you take it? It says this, and I'm just going to read two more verses. We're going to come to a close. But it says this in First Timothy 6.18. Command them to do good. Talking about those that are rich in this present world. To be rich in good deeds. To be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up for themselves a firm foundation for the coming age so that they will take hold of life that is truly life. And in Hebrews 13, we do not have an enduring city here, but we're looking for the city that's to come. Um, It's a healthy reminder to every single one of us Um, that someday somebody will be standing in this pulpit that's not me. Some of y'all are like, thank God, right? Um, Someday, somebody will be standing in this pulpit that is not me. Somebody's going to be sitting in that seat that's not you. There's going to be an entirely different church, God willing, if this building still stands, a hundred years from now than what was here today. We will be gone. The songs that we are singing now, most of them will become irrelevant. This church is going to have some kind of cool name like 180-something. Things are... Things are going to change, and our ministry here is so incredibly temporal. And it's crazy, and, and, and I'm not one of those preachers that comes over here and says, Youth group, pay attention to me, listen to what I'm saying, but I'm going to. <laughs> because, here's what I'm saying, everything we're told, everything that we're given, man, and you know that this is my heart right here, everything that we're given is about this life. What's your degree going to be in? How much money are you going to make? Who are you going to marry? What are your grades right now? Because you know you're only worth about as much as your grades. You know I'm lying, right? (laughs) This is what we're told. And it's like this life, this life, this life, this life. And suddenly Christ comes along and raises your head and says, this life is short. The only thing you need to know is this life has one purpose. And it's whether you're going through that door or not. That's it. Because this life will be over. Cancer. Someday I'm going to come home and tell Melinda I got cancer. Someday I'm going to come home, and reality hits—that this Titanic that we're on—and y'all, this is a comfortable one. We are not, we are not Philadelphia, right? We're on a pretty comfortable ship, but y'all, the ship's going down. And that's what the whole point of what we're doing here is—is recognizing, man, whether you are set and your family is perfect, or whether you're that person that sits there and says, "My life's a disaster." Everything about my life is a disaster. I'm not like the people around me. Everything is... Listen, there's hope. For all of us, it's the same picture. It's going to end. And it's going to end soon. And Christ comes and says, Listen, I'm putting an open door in front of you. I'm just opening the door wide open to you and saying, Listen, I don't care how you have defined yourself in the past. Introvert, INTJ, whatever labels this world gave you. I'm giving you an open door to become somebody new tomorrow. And some of you guys desperately need to hear that. That you are not your past. You are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your grades. Thank God for this. You are not defined by all this junk. You are defined by what Christ has the potential to do in your life. And I want to tell you the reason this message means a lot to me. When I was a youth minister, I knew this fact. I had a big youth group. I knew that those that grew up in the church were the least likely to have a passion for Christ. That's a fact. I'm going to camp on that for a second and let you... I'm going to let that marinate. Those that grew up in the church were the least likely in my youth group to have a deep passion for Christ. Those that came in off the streets were the most likely to give their life entirely. And I would have that person that was just like, I hate church. It's so stupid. Ah, And they would bring their, their friend that their life was all kinds of. And their friend, all of a sudden, their life would be set on fire for Christ. And they'd be like, Jeff, what did you do to my friend? I, I didn't do anything. But that's what God has the power to do in somebody's life. And I want to tell you this, man. I mean, some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. And you're here this morning and you hear what I'm saying. That if you're here this morning and this is your last time to ever come to this church and whatever's going to happen, and you came here this morning thinking, you came here this morning thinking, here we go with a church service. What's it going to be like? Acapella? Some guy's going to talk. Is he going to be funny? Is he not going to be funny? What's going to happen this morning? Listen, if that's how you came up here thinking, I want to let you know something. I don't have much to, tell to say to you, but Christ has a whole lot to say to you. And I pray that you will see that he's setting an open door in front of your life and saying something new can happen. And for those of us that grew up in the church, that something so sacred became something so mundane, God forgive us. That we have got to learn to fall at our knees before a sacred God again and recognize His deliverance for us. Jerusalem had to learn this message. The Jews had to learn this message, and the church today desperately needs to learn this message. Um, God needs to save my life as much as anybody else's. I sat down with a guy yesterday, and he was kind of trying to rebuke me, Uh, We were down at the shelter, and he said, These people don't need help because they're homeless. And I said, I know that. They need help because they're people. I said, That's the way I feel. I don't treat these people any different than I treat people in my own congregation. We all need help. We're all in a desperate place, and we all need Christ. And every single one of us will stand before his throne individually. And I praise God I'm not saved by my works. Don't get me wrong. But I will still be held accountable by the deeds of this life. And what I've done before him. And I pray that for us, at least for what we're accountable for here at Meadowlark, in our own lives, that we would be set on fire this year. And that we would grow in discipleship. Let's pray. Uh, My Father, I love you. for such a challenging message like you give to, to Philippi. Um, I pray, Father, for that person that's here this morning that um, that needed to hear this, that needed to hear your words. My prayer, Father, is that each one of us will not lose sight of the humility that you want to plant in our hearts before you. Humility towards you and humility towards one another. I pray, God, for those that have grown up going to church that maybe it came mundane. To hear something as sacred as the gospel of Christ, simply the message of the cross, somehow became routine. And I pray, Father, that you deliver us from that and call us into a life of passion and sacrifice. And God, for those that are here that just don't consider themselves very good, that have a lot of things in their life that hold them back and they're scared to let go of them and they're scared to give their life to you because they won't let go of them. Um, I pray, God, that you would show them that life in you is not anything but life way more abundantly. And I pray, Father, that that sacrifice would be a joy for all of us. I pray that the new life for some people begins today in you. It's in Christ we come before you and celebrate you. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God together.